Hello, this is William Chamberlain with a special edition of the Popmatic Podcast. Today we have an interview with agent producer George Leto. Among Mr. Leto's credits, these like us, Dress to Kill, Blowout, Over the Edge, and Obsession. Obsession will be showing at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street. The date is Saturday, November 19th at 2 p.m. Now on to the interview. The first question I want to ask is, um, before you were a producer, you were an agent. And for those not in the know, could you talk about what an agent does? An agent is, uh, represents uh, various creative people. You know, in the uh, motion picture business, motion picture television business, which I primarily was involved in in Los Angeles, uh, you usually either represent actors or, or writers, directors, or and, and producers, or and even some of the technical people, the directors of photography, set designers, etc. So, uh, uh, representing them means to advise them and generally try to obtain employment for them. You were Brian De Palma's agent. I'm curious, how did you meet, and why did you sign him as a client? Well, that's an unusual story. Brian De Palma made a film with uh, Ed Pressman called Sisters, and Ed Pressman uh, used to, you know, come to my office to do business from time to time at my agency. When I was an agent, it was my own agency, the George Leto Agency. And he told me he had made this picture with Brian De Palma, which he and a group of investors financed. And he wasn't able to get a distribution deal. And would I see it? He was in New York at the time, and I was in L.A. My office was in L.A., but I spent lots of time in New York. So uh, I said I was going to bring it out, bring the picture out. I said, don't bring it out. In two days or so, I'll be in New York. And you can screen it for me in New York. And he screened it for me at the Rizzoli Theater on Fifth Avenue. And there was a young man there who was arranging it all. And after the film was over, I said, I like the picture. I can sell it. I'll call Ed and tell him. And by the way, uh, I think the director has a big future. And I didn't know who the gentleman was who arranged the picture, but he turned out to be the editor, whose name um, I <laughs> just went out of my head. Was it Paul Hirsch? Paul Hirsch. And Paul Hirsch, you know, went on to win the Academy Award for, as the editor for Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so I made a deal with Eddie Pressman, and, and I proceeded to make the story short, sell the picture to American and National Pictures for distribution. And, uh, and a couple of weeks later, my secretary said to me, uh, Brian De Palma is in our reception room. He'd like to see you. So I said, sure, send him in. And at that point in time, I'm trying to remember the year. It probably was like 1972. I, he came in and said he, he, he would like to have me represent him. And I had already told all my clients that at the end of the year, I was going to quit being an agent and become a producer. And I told him that. And I said, so, you know, you don't want an agent for just a year. He said, well, I'd rather have you for just a year. Get another agent, I said. He said, I'd rather have you instead of some other agent. I said, okay. Now, you know, just so you know, at that time, I also represented Robert Altman and, and Joe Losey. And most of my clients as writers won Academy Awards like Waldo Salt and Ring Arthur Jr. and Dalton Trumbo, et cetera. So I represented him, and I made a couple of deals for him. One was Phantom of Paradise. And, and as I was getting ready... To, uh, to to retire from the agency business, he and 
Paul Schrader, a writer, brought me a, a story, a 30, 40-page story, and at the time it was called Deja Vu. And I read the story, and it took place in Florence, Italy, and New Orleans. And they came to see me and said, what did you think of the story? I said, I liked it very much. I said, but you guys are pulling my leg. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, I'd like almost any movie that was taking place in Florence, Italy, and New Orleans. You know, what you don't know is I'm a gourmet. I like good food. <laughs> so <laughs> I said, uh, I do like it. I'd be interested in producing it. Anyway, we made a deal, and ultimately we ma we made the film. So that's my early meetings and my initial adventures with Brian De Palma. One of the things I enjoyed, the cast in Obsession, you had Cliff Robertson and Jean-Vierre Bourgeau, and a very early role, I think it was his second film role, John Lithgow, and I'm just yeah. curious how you... Um, the casting process of those three actors. Yeah. Nobody remembers the first picture that John Lithgow did, by the way. <laughs> I've got it written down here. <laughs> Dealing or the Berkeley to Boston 40 Brick Lost Bag Blues. Jeez, who can remember that? <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're from Boston. <laughs> now, that's, that's an interesting story. So the way I like to work with filmmakers is I let them do the, all the selecting but I reserved the right to approve. So, you know, Brian agreed to work with me that way. And so, you know, Cliff Robinson, you know, we were all very happy about, and Jean Biev, we always wanted. She was wonderful. They both were wonderful. You know, I thought they both gave great performances. And there was the partner, which was a pivotal role in the picture, and, and Brian suggested lots of people, and, and this was going on for weeks, and I'd say, no, I, that's, I don't think he's quite right. It must be somebody better. You know, we're getting down to we're going to make the picture soon, and we don't have a partner for that role. So finally, Brian said to me, George, I have this guy. I think he's a good actor. I think he can do the job. And if he doesn't like it, you pick anybody you like, and I'll direct him. <laughs> and that was John Lithgow. <laughs> but the interesting thing is he read with Cliff Robertson. And the first response was Cliff coming over to me and said, George, you know, I don't like to act. And I thought he was wonderful when I heard the reading. You know, I don't like to act with someone much taller than me. And I said, uh-uh. <laughs> he said, but this guy's great. I'd love to have him in the movie. <laughs> So that's what happened. Obsession um, has my favorite Bernard Herman score. It, it's my favorite. And do you have any particular memories of Mr. Herman writing the score? Oh, he's a unique and extraordinary character and a great musician and composer. At the time, you know, we were planning the film. We, you know, we knew we wanted a kind of a symphonic score for the movie because we wanted it to be very classic. And Brian recommended Bernard Herman, who did the score for Sisters. And, you know, and he's a legendary composer who did all the great Hitchcock scores, etc., most of them. You know, and I had this new composer I wanted, whose name was John Williams. <laughs> I'm a trained musician, by the way. <laughs> we kept with this debate, and, and, and finally I said, okay, Brian, we had to be in London where Herman lived. And he said, George, you have to meet Bernard Herman, Benny Herman, he's called. I said, fine, okay, Brian. He says, I really want him. I said, okay, we're going to go with Benny Herman. He said, but do me a favor. He's a, he's a very grouchy old guy. He doesn't mean any harm. It's just his personality. So when we have lunch with him, you know, 
I'm usually kind of a no-nonsense guy. I said, you know, just please be nice to him because, you know, he's an old guy and all that. I said, okay, Brian, don't worry about it. And in the meantime, you know, there were things that I thought were a problem in the third act of the script, of the screenplay, and I kept telling Brian he has to fix it. I was committed to financing the picture, which I put up a substantial part of the money for the movie. The studios did not want to make the movie. And I said, but you have to fix the third act of the script, Brian. It's essential. So we went to lunch. I remember at the Churchill Hotel on Baker Street in London. And we're having lunch, and we're talking about the movie and the kind of score. And Bernard Herrmann said, you know, I want, a, I want a symphony orchestra. I want 20 voices. You know, I want at least 12 strings or something like that. And, and, I, and I said, fine. And he says, I want some French horns. And I said, well, how many pieces? He said, well, at least 46. I said, well, you know, 16 or 20 strings will be better, and it's okay if you have at least 50 pieces. So he said he smiled, and he turned to Brian. He said, you know, for a producer, he's not so bad. And, and then Bernard Herman says, okay, Mr. Wise Guy producer, since you know everything, you know you need a new third act, don't you, on this movie? I said, Mr. Herman, please tell that to the director. And, <laughs> and I was off to Italy after that, and... Uh, uh, and several days on, on, on location and production business. And Brian was trying to cast other parts in a film in London. When I came back from Italy to London, Brian called me up when I arrived, and he said he had a new third act. And that's the third act that's in the movie. I was watching the extras on the um, DVD of Dress to Kill, and you stated at the end of every movie, you said you always wanted to make it to make them better. and. I was just curious, looking back on Obsession, what would you change to make it better? Well, the third act was critical. In the, in the original version, Cliff Robinson gets on a plane to find this girl who betrayed him, not knowing it's his daughter. And he finally locates her in Florence at a nunnery, catatonic. And it would have been very downbeat and, to me, unsatisfying. You know, it would have been, a, you know, a, a tragedy. And I said, no, it's, you know, it's really... It's really a story of love. It's, you know, the father and daughter in search of each other. You can't leave the audience, you know, unsatisfied. And so changing that ending was, was the critical thing. You know, because it was an independent picture, you know, Brian and I went over the script very carefully several times because we ended up, because I said to him, you know, all the, all the film has to be on the screen. We can't, we don't have the money to shoot scenes we're not going to use because we can't afford more than 45 days on this picture. And, and traveling to Florence, Italy, and New Orleans, that wasn't a lot of time. So I said, you know, we've got to be very efficient so that we can, you know, have the best of everything, Vilma Sigmund and, you know, Panavision, et cetera. You know, and uh, Bernard Herman score it with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. I mean, you know, if we're going to do all this, we've got to be very efficient in the making of the picture. So we, we, made, we made all the cuts and everything before the, you know, we shot, and Brian did a great job, because we only shot about one half a day that wasn't used in the actual final editing of the picture. And that's part of what made it possible to maintain that level of quality. Uh, once again, on the extras of the DVD of Dress to Kill, and this, oh, this question is about Dress to Kill. You said you went to Samuel Z. Arcroft to raise the money to produce Dress to Kill. And I got to meet Samuel Z.R.Croft at a film festival mm -hmm. once. He was quite a character. And oh, he's a great character. <laughs> and how does one get Samuel Z.R.Croft to finance your movie? 
Well, at the time, from being an agent, I used to do a bit of business with Sam, and we had a very good relationship, and, you know, we always talked about possibly working together when I was an agent. And uh, so now I was a producer, and I knew, oh, Sam was interested in an obsession, but I made a better deal with Columbia Pictures for that picture. And so I knew he was also an admirer of Brian's. So when Brian brought me the script, Brian had written the script and just said, George, do you want to produce this? And I read it. I said, you know, dress to kill. If we can't make a deal for if we don't agree on a deal, I'm going to kill you. He says, why? I said, I love it. I think it's a great movie. It's going to be a great movie. I said, you know, so to we, I started to go out to the studios to put together the deal. And I was running into lots of resistance. And we wanted to get the picture going right away. So I called up Sam Arkoff. I said, I wanted to come see him. He said, how about 9 o'clock tomorrow morning? I said, great, I'll be there. You know, and I went in to see him, and I said, Sam, I have this wonderful script, uh, Brian De Palma. Uh, we already have Michael Caine interested in doing it, and Angie Dickinson, and the girl, Nancy Allen. I said, we're ready to go. We know we want to shoot in New York and everything, and, and I think it was $6 million. I said, we need $6 million. I said, so I can't screw around, Sam. You got to read the script tonight and call me tomorrow morning and tell me whether you're going to do the deal. He said, you're kidding me. I said, that's it, Sam, or I'm going to sell it to somebody else. <laughs> I had nobody else. <laughs> so he called me the next morning. He said, I'm in. I said, great. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> Moving along to... Uh a personal favorite of mine and Clint's. It's um, I've got to ask you about Over the Edge and how did you come to finance that movie? Well, Tim Hunter, one of the writers, was the son of Ian Hunter, who was a famous writer, Hollywood writer, who was one of my clients. He was one of the blacklisted writers too. And so Tim, when he was out of school or up at San, living in San Jose or well, you know, I didn't. I don't remember whether he's still actually in college or teaching or something like that. You know, used to come into L.A. and he'd come to my office and I'd sit him in a room and I'd leave a half a dozen scripts on his desk. And I said, read them, you know, and I and I'd pay him for them. So he used to read for me so he could make a few extra dollars. And I did it because you know his father was my client and and I thought Tim was a bright guy. His opinions were very special, but he was a bright guy, too special sometimes. <laughs> Anyway, so uh, so uh, so he and he came to me one day and said, "I did a, I wrote a screenplay." I said, "Great." He said, "Will you read it?" I said, "Sure." I read it. It was it was called Mouse Packs at the time, and I said, "I like it." He said, "You want to produce it?" I said, "Yeah, I'd be interested in producing it." And we made a deal, and uh, so basically that's it, and that's that's how I met him. I mean, I that's how I met him, and and the way Over the Edge it was later changed Over the Edge. You know, it's because of, I represented his father, and he used to read for me. This movie has been rediscovered, you know, on HBO, on videotape, and Danny Perry praised it in his book, Occult Movies 3. Um, could you discuss why this movie at the time had a lack of distribution? Well, it had Warner Brothers and Orion. It had the distributor. But at the time, there were several movies like The Wanderers and couple other titles I don't remember now. Kids movies, young young people's movies with violence. And there were some riots in the theaters and some fights and, you know, and things like that. 
so uh, it was, you know, a troubled time. And, and because of all that, uh, you know, this movie with young people and, you know, uh, with drugs and alcohol and, and the violence, because, you know, they, they saw it that way and it kind of frightened them. Uh, the movie was too real for most people, and it was a little ahead of its time because the reason I liked Over the Edge, one of the reasons, was that it was kind of trying to tell the American audience and parents as well as children to reorganize, refocus their priorities. You know, the, the, the society was becoming too materialistic and not paying attention to the needs of the kids. And, and, and if you don't pay attention to the needs of the kids, you know, some tragic things can happen, which happened in this movie, you know, uh, and, uh, and, and later on, I always think of Columbine and things like that, you know, and, and I relate it to why, you know, I was interested in Over the Edge as a movie I thought could have significance. By the way, Vice Magazine and one of the editors from uh, Vanity Fair wrote it up and they arranged a special screening at the Lincoln Center. I think it was February a year ago, which I attended. And in the article he wrote, uh, Sex, uh, I can't remember his first name is for the moment. In Vice Magazine, they, he wrote like 10 or 12 page article about the history of the making of the film. And he called it the greatest teenage rebellion film ever made. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, and I agree with that. And just to let you know, last November we showed that here at the library, and we interviewed Charlie Haas at the time. Well, there you go. Okay. All right. Now I just want to talk about the blacklist. And as an agent, yeah. you represented Waldo Salt, um, Dalton Trombo, Joseph Losey, Ring Lardner Jr., Michael Wilson, Abraham Polanski, and these and gentlemen. Many more. Yeah. <laughs> They used to say I represented 17 of the unfriendly 10. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, because when I was an agent and, and all the blacklisted writers I was representing, forgive me for interrupting you. Oh, no, go ahead. You know, you know, uh, you know uh, each one of them, you know, when Walter Salt became my client, he was among the first. I got him Midnight Cowboy, won an Academy Award, and became a legendary writer. You know, that Michael Wilson showed up from Paris. And I got him playing of the apes, and his career was back in shape. And, and then I got Walt, Dalton Trumbull became my client. I got him Papillon. And then Ring Widener called me up and told me to read this book called MASH, and I got a deal for him to do it at Fox, and I got my client Bob Altman to direct it. So you can see I was on a hot streak. <laughs> and A. Polanski, I put together Telling Willie Boy is Here with uh, Bob Redford. So, and I can go on, but that's it. Well, uh, just a little minutia, um, what difficulties did you have getting these writers work? Because a lot of them had been out of it. For example, how did you get Waldo Salt the writing job for Midnight Cowboy? Well, actually, Waldo, Waldo already was brought back to work by Harold Hecht, who he worked with before The Blacklist. He did a movie called uh, Flame and the Arrow and some other movies. And I, and I knew all his movies prior to The Blacklist, which I thought were great, like Rachel and the Stranger and, and Flame and the Arrow with Burt Lancaster. And Rachel the Stranger was with Bob Mitchum and William Holden with Reddy Young. I thought they were marvelous movies. I was a big fan of him as a writer. It's probably part of why I represented these people, is I loved their movies. I thought they were great writers. But Waldo was my client. 
and he did a couple of those movies, and, and I made a deal for him with a producer to write Don Quixote, which became one of the legendary great scripts never produced, because it's just too difficult, I guess. Anyway, so Jerry, Jerry, uh, I was going to say Jerry Hellman, yeah, Jerry Hellman was planning to produce, he used to be an agent too, so we know each other well. He was now switching to becoming a producer, and he was at 20th Century Fox, and I popped into his office. He said, George, we have this wonderful book called Midnight Cowboy, and uh, we, you know, we don't have a good script, and we're having trouble finding someone who can write it. Do you have any guy who can write it? And I said, I know the book, and I know the author, because I used to work in New York in the theater, and he was a playwright, and I liked his plays, too. And I said, I think I have the perfect guy for you. He said, you do? And I told him about Walter. He said, well, Jesus, I don't know if we can hire him because the two movies he did with Harold Hecht, Flight to She and Monsieur Cognac, were two of the biggest bombs the last two years. I said, I know, but he didn't produce me, just wrote him. <laughs> you know? I said, you're the producer. You know, if the script's good, you'll see the movie's good. He says, well, what? I said, listen, I'm going to send you 50 pages of a script he's working on. It's all about New York, and it's similar in tone and attitude to what you will need to make a successful Midnight Cowboy. And anyway, I sent him that script, and he said, gee, I, I love it. i got to send it to John Schlesinger. And he said, then I'll have to meet with Schlesinger. I don't know if we go to London or we'll do it here. I said, well, send it to him, see if he likes it, so see if we can take the next step. And he sent it to Schlesinger, and Schlesinger said, uh, we don't have to have a meeting. Hire him immediately. And that's what happened. Right. You also represented, you mentioned earlier, Joseph Losey, and yes. he directed The Boy with the Green Hair and The Go Patrine. And I read in an interview once he said he was going to come back to America to make a film, but he went into exile and during the blacklist. And do you know why he never did return to America to make movies? Well, I, I think he, you know, he was quite happy living and working in Europe. He did the, the three Pinter movies that are three great classic movies, The Servant, The Accident, and The Go-Between. Go-Between won first The Golden Palm and Khan, you know, and they were very distinguished movies. And he made other movies, I can't remember all at the moment, in France, and he was doing very well. And and he and because I used to go to Europe a lot and and I represented so many other people he knew I became his client and I put together the movie about Trotsky with Richard Burton that was also directed by Joe Losey and written by Ian Hunter Tim Hunter's father so Joe never told me he wanted to come back to the states so I I think he was very happy by that time living in Europe because he didn't really like the Hollywood system he had a lot more freedom and respect in the European community. I do. Ha I want to ask about Abraham Falonsky too, who wrote and directed Force of Evil in 1948. And I was curious. You talked about this a little earlier. I was just curious. How did you get him a job of writing and directing? Tell them, Willie Boy is here in 1969, 20 years later. Well, I'll tell you. It's all kind of you know the what I call the chemistry of life. You know, when I was a kid, my brother was a championship boxer. He won the Golden Gloves. He was a champion boxer in Golden Gloves. And I fought in the Golden Gloves at several fights. And I decided I'd want to continue. Right? So I liked, but I liked boxing, boxing as, a, as a sport and a challenge. I used to work out with my brother. You know? And uh, so when I went to see Body and Soul, his movie that with John Garfield, that he, won the Academy, that he won the Academy Award, 
I think the movie did too, and he won the Academy Award for the best screenplay, and it was directed by that great director Robert Rosson. That movie was is on my mind till today, as one of my favorite great movies of all time. Certainly the greatest movie ever made about boxing. So because of all the people I had worked with that were blacklisted, one of our mutual friends brought Polanski, hey, Polanski to meet me, and we got along. You know, very well instantly because we had to report about all these things. And I, I worked as his agent and I represented him. And this person who introduced me to him was a producer by the name of Phil Waxman, who had a story called Tell Willie Boy. He had a novel called Tell Willie Boy's Here, which I read, which Waldo saw wanted to write, but Phil couldn't get it together at that time. And I said, Why don't you give it to Abe? And Abe read it and liked it. And uh, to cut through the story, I, I made a deal for Abe and Phil Waxman to write the script of Universal Pictures, and I helped them get Bob Redford. They made the picture. Uh, can I ask about three more questions, sir? You can ask for as many as you like. Okay, thank you. Uh, Until I bore you, then you have to quit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you also represented Leonard Friedman, who created and produced Hawaii Five O, and. I read where you were going to produce a feature film of the TV show, and now there's a new Hawaii Five-O show, and I was just curious what happened to the feature film, and do you have anything to do with the new show? Well, I, I, I co-own all the rights, including television and the movie and everything related to it with the estate of Leonard Freeman. Okay? But a long time ago, when Leonard passed away in the seventh year of making Hawaii Five-O, you know, we had, a, again, a very close relationship. We not only had that success and many others, he, I also put together Hang Em High, the first Clint Eastwood movie that Leonard Freeman co-wrote and produced. And I said, got Clint to do the movie and set up the picture and all that. And so we, so when he, had, he was going to go for a bypass operation. I think it was 74, 73, probably. And it was very early in bypass operations, and he came to see me, and... You know, he told me the odds were 50-50 on making it or not. And he had, you know, his widow and three young children that I knew very well because we were good friends. Uh, and he said, he got me to say that he would, I would personally look after all their business interests if anything happened to him, which I promised to do. So anyway, at the, he didn't make it. He passed away. And I made a deal with CBS to, because the show was very successful, to protect their their profits because if a new producer came on and the budgets got out of control you know all the equity that Freeman had created could have been wiped out by over budgets and interest rates and all that at the time interest rates were like 18 percent so I made a deal with CBS that we would we would that would protect the profit shares and that they would have a continuing right to make a television show but we would retain the movie rights so uh, under that management, and they made that deal, and the deal turned out to be very profitable for the Freeman estate. Uh, and then we went on to plan to make the movie. Uh, but in the meantime, <laughs> in the meantime, CBS claimed, under new management now, claimed they owned the movie rights, and they sued the Freeman estate in federal court. And I had it dismissed, and 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 got lawyers to, you know, get it to a writers' guild arbitration. Uh, and at that point in time, you know, the Freeman Estate and I had become business partners. We have a partnership called LF Productions, um, you know, LLC, 
which we co-owned the rights. Uh, so I, I assisted them, and, and I was being sued, too, as a co-owner with the Freeman Estate. And anyway, we prevailed, and we were dismissed from federal court, prevailed in the arbitration with the guild, so we owned the movie rights, and I surely thereafter proceeded to make a deal with Warner Brothers to, to do the movie, but the first couple of screenplays did not turn out too well. And in the course of that, CBS announced they were going to do a television show. So now we still intend to make the movie. We probably won't make it for another year or two because the television show was successful. And we want the, uh, you know, the equity to accumulate from the television show. But I'm sure by 2012 or 13, we'll be making the film. Um, I was also reading that you negotiated deals financed by independent producers. And could you discuss what this is, involves? And could you use Melvin Van Peebles' sweet, sweet, bad, badass <laughs> song as an example? Did you have missed anything so far. <laughs> I do my research, sir. Well, you sure do. <laughs> Well, Melvin, I always laugh when I think of the story because it was such a crazy adventure. You know, so Melvin came to see me. He's making this picture called Sweet Sweet Back. And, you know, and I had, you know, one of my clients who also blacklisted his name was Arnold Pearl, who wrote the first black love story for television called Who Do You Kill on East Side, West Side, the George C. Scott series, and won the, was, won the Emmy for that show. He was a great writer, too. And he also co-wrote Malcolm X with Jimmy Baldwin. So I was kind of well-known in the black community as well. Melvin Mayer Peoples came to see me and says, he's got this film, it's almost finished, he needs some money. You know, could I help him and then sell the picture for him? And I said, show me the picture, Melvin, and he did, and I liked it. And I think I gave him $15,000, I think, to finish the film that he already spent $75,000 on. <laughs> So anyway, make the story short, he finished the film, we, we sold it to this new small distribution company called Cinemation. Jerry Gross was the owner, and they opened the picture in Chicago and Detroit, and it did like house-breaking house records, and the film made lots of money for an independent picture as number one or two for a couple of weeks on the variety top 50 pictures. So uh, Melvin came to my office one day, <laughs> and he said, George... He says, why haven't we been paid? I said, Melvin, it takes more than a month. I said, to collect your money because the distributors got to get it from the exhibitors and they don't rush to pay you. And, you know, he said, but I'm going to go to New York and if Jerry Gross doesn't pay me my money, he said, I'm going to shoot him. <laughs> and I said, Melvin, if you want me to collect the money, you have to miss. <laughs> So anyway, we got the money, and Melvin became a millionaire. <laughs> oh, great. Dalton Trombeau, um, I was just curious, did you help him get his novel um, made into a feature, Johnny Got His Gun? Uh, no, I didn't. I met him right after that. I gave him some advice on that at different times. But, but right after that, uh, he became my client, and I got him, I think, Scarlatti Inheritance, uh, by Ludlum, we wrote for an independent producer. And then uh, one day, uh, Ted Richmond, who used to be Tyrone Powers' producer and manager partner, came to me. He was going to do this movie called Papillon with a famous French producer whose name is out of my head right now. 
uh, and he said to me, George, you got to do me a favor because we, we were well acquainted. You got to get me Waldo Salt to, to rewrite the screenplay. We got Dustin Hoffman because it was after Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> and we got, uh, you know, we got everything. Franklin Schaffner and Steve McQueen. We got to have Waldo. Or they won't be happy. I said, when do you want to make this picture? He said, in six months. I said, if you want me to help you destroy the movie, I should make a deal for you for Waldo. He said, what do you mean by that? I said, Waldo doesn't know what he's going to write for the first six months, let alone finish the script. He takes a year, year and a half to write a script. <laughs> he said, well, what am I going to do? I said, I have another idea for you. I said, Dalton Trumbo, because he's a great writer, and he'll do it in six weeks if he has to. <laughs> so we made the deal for Dalton. Everybody was quite happy. I was reading a book on Robert Altman called Robert Altman, an Oral Biography, and this is something Jones Tewksbury said. She was talking about how the money fell out about three times on Thieves Like Us. Mm -hmm. And she stated when you're making movies, um, there comes a point where you either put it on the line or, and do it or simply walk away. And she was talking about um, you, Robert Altman, and Jerry Brick, and I was just curious... Is that the essence of being a producer, either put up or shut up? No, they say people use their own money in movie business are crazy. Or at least that's what they used to think at that time, because it was such control by the you know six, seven major studios. To me, I always looked at, I put together the financing for lots of movies. I financed Obsession. I financed Over the Edge. Uh, you know, Bob, uh, you know, I gave Melvin money. And, I, and I've been, you know, maybe 90% successful with all the financial deals I did. So I always thought when it was worthwhile and the deal was smart, you should do it. But what happened on Thieves Like Us was uh, when Bob turned in the budget, we made a deal with the United Artists to do the film. But when they saw the budget, they said the movie was going to, they, they wanted to make the movie for like a million three. And they said Bob's budget was a million eight. And they were going to cancel the picture. So I went to the location in Mississippi with Bob and sat with him and his production manager, Calum to go over to find out what the picture could be made for. And they came, you know, and we came up with, you know, with the fact that the movie would cost a million three, right? And that, so I said, put all together and send it to the production guy at UA. I'm going to New York next week, and, and I'll go talk to, you know, David Picker and see if I can get this deal made, you know? So I went and I talked to him, and they didn't believe the movie could be made for a million three. So to make the story short, I came to an understanding with them. They would agree to go ahead and finance the movie, but they wouldn't pay Bob Woman or the producer, Jerry Bick. See, I was not going to produce it at that time. I put the whole deal together, but I wasn't going to produce it. So I said, and, and that time, I think it was about $300,000 or so that they were putting up at that time for Bob and the producer. So I said, okay, let me talk to Bob. I think I can make this work. So I said, Bob, you know, you can make the movie, but you can't get paid until after you deliver the picture. He said, I can't do that. I've been down here for weeks. I've been spending my own money. You know, I don't have any money left. I can't do the deal. Cancel the movie, George, and find me another movie. I said, Bob, by the time I find you another movie, you know, this movie could be shot. He said, well, I can't do it, George. So I said, you know what? I'll guarantee the back end of UA, and I'll advance you money to make the movie. And since I'm going to quit in about six months, the agency business in six months, I'll be the executive producer and go make the movie. 
and that's what we did. Just got to say, Georgia, thanks for just a great interview. This is going to sound great on our podcast. I can't Good. tell you how much I appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure. My only regret is I'm not in Nashville. I'm not going to see the movie in this beautiful new high-definition color. Okay. Well, I'm sorry you came out. I mean, that would be great if you come on down. (laughs) What is the screening, by the way? Oh, it's it's in November. Oh, November. Well, you know, stay in touch with me. Maybe I can make it. We'll see. Well, that'd be fantastic. Okay, because I've never, truthfully, I've never been to Nashville, and you don't know this, but I'm a trained musician and I'm a ex-songwriter. So and I like country music. So I've always wanted to go to Nashville. <laughs> well, this would be the perfect opportunity. <laughs> All right. Well, let's stay in touch and and uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you guys. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I would like to thank George Leto for granting us the interview. Remember, come to the downtown Nashville Public Library Saturday, November 19th at 2 p.m. to see Obsession on our big screen. It's free.